get started this morning. We'll go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day and all the blessings that it holds in store for us. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us uh, during this time, this Sunday school hour, that uh, that you would guide us as we look into your word, as we uh, consider your will, Lord, how you wisely work all things according to the counsel of your will, and uh, Lord, how you reveal to us what it is that you desire for us. And Lord, we pray that as we see these things, you would be working in us by your spirit, that we would be inclined to obedience to your word, that you would empower us to walk in its truth. Lord, we just uh, ask that your blessings would be upon us throughout this day, uh, that uh, we would be able to see you more clearly, uh, understand what you call us to, and um, be more willing and eager to walk in obedience to you, that our lives would be lived to your glory as you have called us to. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, in his book, um, Just Do Something, Kevin DeYoung relates the following story. The headline reads, Man 91 dies waiting for the will of God. Dateline, Tupelo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family members as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. Quote, He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back, quote, because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way. Ruby says he was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. That was primary to him. Okay, so uh, in case you're wondering, that's not actually a true story. It didn't appear in any paper, I guess. I'm guessing you probably figured that out, as ridiculous as it is. But um, perhaps this illustration um, is a little closer to how some engage in decision-making than we would like to think. Think about this line. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will. What exactly does that mean? How do we know what God's will is. How do you know if you're in it or when you step out of it? What happens when you fall out of it? Uh, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. What is God's will and uh, what relevance does it have for how we make decisions? 
So last week, Pastor Desmond talked about God's sovereignty. Today, we're going to get into the question of His will. And we'll start by answering this basic question, what is the will of God? And then apply that to the decisions that we're called to make in life. Now, before we can attempt to answer the question, what is the will of God for any particular situation, we need to start by defining our terms. In the scriptures, the concept of God's will is used in a variety of contexts and doesn't always have the same meaning. Traditionally, uh, it's been common for Christians to speak of the will of God in two ways. Um, There is God's will of decree, and this is also called God's sovereign will, and it's largely what was covered uh, last week. God's will of decree is what God determined before the creation of the world, what he determined would certainly come to pass, and that includes everything. God always accomplishes what he intends And for those who love him, this is a source of great comfort and encouragement. Someone may ask, how do you know that it's God's will for you to be married to your spouse? Well, because you're married. Um, (laughs) how, How do you know that it's God's will for you to come to this class this morning? Because you're here. It's that simple in one respect. Everything that happens, happens according to God's will of decree. And everything that God has decreed will invariably and infallibly come to pass. We see the comprehensive nature of his will in passages such as Ephesians 1.11. It says there, in him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Also, Daniel 4.35, where he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And also Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all things according to his will. From the seemingly most insignificant, as mentioned in Proverbs 16:33, where it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So from that to matters of greatest possible consequence, as we see in Acts 4, 27 and 28, where it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, so... That's God's absolute will of decree. Um, Then secondly, we can speak of God's will when we we can speak of it as uh, God's will of command. And we see these 
two wills side by side in Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We don't know God's will of decree, everything that will happen, but we do know his commands and it is God's will that we obey them. That is our responsibility. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 where Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and it continues. Um, so we see that God's will here is that we be sanctified. Um, so when you ask the question, what is God's will, it's important to be clear as to what exactly you mean. If you mean uh, what is God's will of decree, then you're essentially saying, what is the future? Uh, and that's not something that God has determined to make known to us. In fact, in James chapter 4, he rebukes those who presume to know the future. That's God's province, not ours. But then if what you mean is what is God's will of command, then the answer is pretty clear. What do the scriptures say? As Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.16, the scriptures are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. They provide what we need to be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible gives us the whole counsel of God's will for how we are to live. Now you might be thinking that these theological distinctions are well and good, but I just want to know if it's God's will for me to buy this house or take this job or to marry this person or not. Um, now here's how one author addresses that question. He says, If we ask, how can I know the will of God? We may be asking the wrong question. The scriptures do not command us to find God's will for most of life's choices, nor do we have any passage instructing on how it can be determined. Yet we persist in searching for God's will because decisions require thought and sap energy. We seek relief from the responsibility of decision-making, and we feel less threatened by being passive rather than active when making important choices. Okay, now, this may be a little overstated. Asking the question, how can I know God's will, doesn't necessarily mean that you're passive and lazy. But oftentimes, uh, people are wanting certainty when it isn't possible. Uh, they want risk-free decision-making. In fact, in many cults and authoritarian groups, the fact that many of life's decisions, major and minor, are made for them is part of the appeal to some people. Uh, but God wants us to live a life of wisdom. He wants us to grow in maturity. He calls us to trust him, to walk by faith, to seek wisdom from God, and to seek counsel from godly men and women. Now to try to help make more clear what God's will is, I want to talk a bit about what God's will is not. Um, we'll look at some common misperceptions about God's will. Um, one author describes 
a typical way of looking at God's will this way. Conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway that we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. If and when we make the right choices, we will receive his favor, fulfill our divine destiny, and succeed in life. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. You may have thought this way or known someone who has, as though God's will is like some obscure and hard-to-find path in a thick forest. And if you fail to find it or if you wander off of it, then you enter into territory uh, that is unknown and you become exposed to all kinds of dangers and difficulties until you're able to find your way back to the path of God's will when life then will become smooth and easy and full of wonderful blessings. Now, in some ways, this is confusing or conflating the two aspects of God's will um, that we've been talking about. God's will of decree is largely obscure and unknown to us. His paths, he tells us, are beyond tracing out. But the path he calls us to walk in, his will of command, he makes clear through his word. And while there are dangers in getting off the revealed path of his will, Walking in light of his revealed word does not guarantee a smooth and easy way. It only guarantees that he is with us in the way. God's will may involve much difficulty and suffering for us rather than comfort and ease. So then, um, the will of God is not like a choose-your-own-adventure book where if you find the right path, then you go on to glory but if you turn the wrong page, you die a horrible death in a volcano or something. Uh, God will not be thwarted in his will to work for the good of his people in all things. God's will is not a fairy tale life of comfort and happiness. As we'll see in a few minutes, God cares more about our eternal happiness than our temporal happiness. God's will may involve much difficulty and suffering for us rather than comfort and ease. So that just because something, quote, bad happens doesn't mean that you somehow missed God's will. It means that God has good in mind for you that far exceeds the cost of suffering that you're experiencing. And God's will is not a target that, can, that you can somehow miss. You can disobey God's will of command, but you cannot escape his will of decree. So the fact that you disobeyed God at one juncture doesn't mean that you're forever confined to a life where you can't experience God's abundant blessings. That's not to say that there are no consequences for sin and foolishness. There are, and uh, we need to repent of our sin and we need to cease from our foolishness. But even these consequences which may follow um, are the outworking of God's eternal will of decree for us, and they do work together for our good.
So back to the practical questions. Does God want me to marry that particular person? Perhaps. But the way to know is not to wait for a certain feeling or some sure sign or just simply follow the feelings that you have. If you do marry, then to be certain that was God's will of decree. <clears throat> but it is possible to violate his revealed will, um, his will of command in the process. For example, if you as a professing Christian were to marry a non-Christian, this would be a clear violation of God's will of command. But since the Bible doesn't tell you to marry this person or not to marry that person specifically, a far better question to ask is, is it wise to marry this person? Would such a marriage help me to obey God's command, say, to seek his kingdom first and his righteousness, to pursue my sanctification, to grow in Christ's likeness? Scripture does lay out for us principles of decision-making, which will be discussed over the next couple of weeks. But the point here is that there's no secret to decode, uh, no secret will of God for your life that you're responsible for finding out. God's normal way to guide our decisions is the wisdom that he's made available to us. So we need to be continuously praying for wisdom. First, we need to admit that we lack wisdom. Okay, so that requires humility. James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We lack it. God has it. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we ask. James continues, we ask God who gives to all generously without reproach. He doesn't find fault with you that you lack it. He doesn't say that you should be able to figure this out, but he gives it. He graciously provides what we need. It says, and it will be given to him. He'll do that by giving insight into his word and its application to, his, to our lives, and he'll do it through others helping to provide that insight. In other words, we should pray that God would enable us both to think and to act more wisely, that in our thinking and in our decision-making, we would act wiser than we naturally are because our minds are being renewed and we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. <clears throat> well, then let's talk about what God's will is for us. Um, and you'll see on the handout there, uh, letter A, his will is that we obey. In John 14, 21, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus here is obviously speaking about God's revealed will of command. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. God has revealed his will and he commands that we obey him. So what are the implications of this for our decision making? I want us to see two things here. Most obviously, we can be confident that God will never guide us to make a decision that would involve disobeying his word. If you think God is leading you to do something and it requires disobedience to his word, quite simply, you're being deceived. 
I know this seems obvious, uh, but Christians and professing Christians can rationalize their way into all kinds of confusion about this. The heart is deceitful, and it needs to be purified by the word. The mind needs renewal by the word. You might hear people rationalize, I know that he's not a Christian, but I really feel that God is calling me to marry him. Maybe God will use me to bring him to Christ. Doesn't the Bible say something about the wife winning over the husband? Um, Or, I have a strong sense that I should take this job, which requires me to work every Lord's Day, but I can make a lot of money so I could give more to the church. God will never lead you to live in disobedience to his word. Secondly, uh, it's important to see how obedience in clear things helps us then to grow in wisdom, to understand how to be obedient in less clear areas as well. Job 28, 28 says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Or Romans 12, 2, which I've alluded to several times, says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice the connection between obedience and wisdom. As our minds are renewed and as we mature in Christ, as we go from being conformed to the world and sin to being conformed to Christ and righteousness, It is through this transformation that we increasingly are enabled to better discern what God's will is. Sometimes it's not easy to know which path is the path of obedience. Wise application can be difficult to discern, especially where different responsibilities can seem to present uh, competing claims on your life. For instance, how do I care for my aging parents and not neglect the needs of my wife and children and also fulfill my covenant responsibilities to my church. Uh, These could potentially look like they come into conflict. What do we need in order to discern what obedience looks like? We need wisdom. And how do we get wisdom? One way is by obeying in, in clear things, as we said. Obey God in the areas that you can see clearly, and he will give you wisdom to discern how best to obey in areas that appear less clear. Conversely, if you're actively disobeying in things that you clearly know to do, you shouldn't be surprised that God's will seems so unclear in other areas. So next... um, His will is that we be holy. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So is this referring to God's will of decree or his will of command? Really, it it refers to both here. God's command, God commands us to be sanctified, to be holy. 
which corresponds to his will that we obey. But he also decrees that those who are in Christ are sanctified, are being sanctified, and will be sanctified. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so here is a will of command that we that we work at our salvation um, and that we live lives of obedience. And then he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is working that out in your life according to his decree. <clears throat> so according to God's decree and by virtue of the nature of true conversion and the role in the work of the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, you will be made holy. That work won't be completed in this life, <clears throat> but progress will be made in this life. So if you see no fruit of holiness in this life, you have good cause to question whether you are really in the faith. And um, it's appropriate to examine yourself um, in light of that. If, if you see no fruit of holiness, no growth, um, it's, it's a legitimate question uh, because God will sanctify and does sanctify his people. But if sanctification is God's will for his people, explicitly stated here, and uh, th then why does so much discussion about, quote, finding God's will focus not on our sanctification or on our holiness, but on things that we see as more practical concerns, things like who you should marry or where you should retire or what job you should pursue? The fact is, God is not so much concerned about giving us predetermined answers to our pragmatic, even if honest, concerns. Rather, he's concerned about making us holy people. People whose decisions reflect godly spiritual priorities and concerns, which are grounded in the knowledge and love of God and his word, and a desire to glorify Christ and to walk in the spirit. People, that is, who have been crucified with Christ to this world and the world to them. It's Galatians 2.20 and 6.14. And who by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So perhaps our misplaced concern about finding God's will means we've done a poor job of assessing what decisions really are important. Going back to Kevin DeYoung again, here's how he puts it. Most important issues for God are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness, faithfulness, hospitality, love, worship, and faith. These are his big concerns. <clears throat> the problem is, that we tend to focus most of our attention on everything else. We obsess over the things that God has not mentioned and may never mention. While by contrast, we spend little time on all the things that God has already revealed to us in the Bible. 
God is glorified in us as our work reflects his work. That is, we, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. <clears throat> so what you do for work uh, may not be nearly as important in his assessment as how you do it. Who you marry may not be nearly as important as how you live out that marriage. Where you retire may not be nearly as important as how you live out your retirement. <clears throat> if we consistently sought to align our thinking and our decision-making <clears throat> to the will of God that he's revealed to us in his word, then we would find ourselves far less concerned about the things that this world is so concerned about. Now, in light of this, consider Romans 8.28, and we can see what is central to God's will and purpose for us. Um, and there it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is working for the good of those who love him in all things. If we're not seeing this, if we're going through some trial and can't see how any good can come of it, it may be that our concept of good is informed more by the world than by God's word. If we tend to understand good as comfort, ease, pleasure, and prosperity, then we will think that God is failing to work for our good in many circumstances. But in verse 29, we see what it means that God works all things for the good of those who love him. What God intends as our good is our being conformed to the likeness of Christ. When we understand this, it changes our perspective and our expectations on the Christian life. It changes how we think about things like suffering and blessing and sacrifice, and it resets our priorities, desires, and goals. So often when people talk about not wanting to miss God's will for their lives, they have in mind a life free from pain and discomfort, a life in which they make the right choice every time, um, <clears throat> that if they make the right choice every time, then they will be in God's will and their lives will go along smoothly. But that could not be farther from the truth. Not only is that kind of life not promised by God, regardless of what some religious hucksters might say, but it completely misses the purpose of God for us, the good he intends and does work in the lives of his people. <clears throat> As we talked about, his purposes for our good are often brought about through trial, through suffering, through loss. When we face trials of every kind, we need not fear that we're being punished for missing God's will for our lives because of some mistake we made or sin that we committed. If God is sovereign and his purposes cannot be thwarted, 
then he can and does use even our bad decisions, uh, even our sin, to bring about his purposes to make us like Christ. His discipline corrects us, and, um, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit works transformation in us. Again, this is God's will for you, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.3, that you be sanctified, that you be holy. Um, now, uh, let's look at then letter C. His will is that Christ be exalted. Let's read Ephesians 1, verses 5 to 10. It says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, the first thing that we see here in regard to God's will is that it is his will that we be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 5. This adoption includes all of the privileges of filial relation. That is, we are his sons and as such, we have access to the Father, we have intimate fellowship with Him, and we are made heirs of all that is His. But you see, this is because we are adopted through Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son, and who has granted us access, who is in the bosom of the Father, and who is the righteous and rightful heir of all things. And according to the riches of His glorious grace, we, his children, are brought into this fellowship and made co-heirs with Christ. But look in verse uh, 9. It says there that he makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose or his eternal decree, which Christ would carry out in the fullness of time. Ultimately, to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him. So this purpose is centered in Christ, it is accomplished by Christ, and it is to the glory and the exaltation of Christ. God's will, according to his eternal decree, is that Christ be exalted above all, and that all things would be united under him. As Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> so what implications does this have for our decision making? Uh, namely that we align it always with God's will 
um, which he has now made known to us. We want our acts of decision-making to consciously and deliberately seek what we know God is always seeking, namely his glory, the exaltation of Christ in all things, and specifically in our lives. As Paul says, uh, whether by life or by death. This is our purpose for which we were created and redeemed to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so as we think through Christian decision-making, we want to seek to align every decision we make with God's great purpose to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under the exalted Christ. And then number four, um, how to do God's will. Okay, so the wrong thing to conclude here is that if God is infallibly working everything according to the counsel of his will, if he is good and wise and his plans cannot be thwarted, why not approach life from a passive wait-and-see posture? Why not just sit back and let him do all the work? The answer is because believing and trusting in God's absolute sovereignty does not make us fatalists. And this is precisely because God enters into covenantal, personal relationship with us to lead us in the way that we should go. And he has revealed that way through his word. And he illumines it to us by his spirit. Through this, we have our mind renewed, our life transformed, our character changed, and we discern and understand and know what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable and perfect. Though there's no specific secret will of God for your life that you need to search out and find, there is a way for you actually to do God's will. And um, we're going to take the final few minutes to look at one particular passage to see what it has to say about doing the will of God. Turn to uh, Matthew 6, uh, 25, if you will. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I want us to see uh, what Jesus says here about worry and anxiety. If you look down at verse 30, he attributes worry and anxiety to a lack of of faith. He says, O you of little faith. Jesus shows us that worry is a spiritual issue that must be overcome by faith. We need to believe that whatever troubles come at us today, that God gives grace and has mercy for us to face them. He will provide all things according to our needs. He always has. In his Faithfulness to his people, God 
has both led them through and delivered them from many weighty trials. He led the Israelites through the sea on dry ground. He provided for them in the wilderness. He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. And in the fullness of time, he sent his son into the world to die and to pay the penalty for our sin. He raised him from death and seated him on his throne at his right hand. He ever lives to intercede for us. We can go to him freely and find grace to help in a time of need. He is faithful to his covenant and to his people, and he will not fail you in your time of need. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We need to, therefore, continuously seek to grow in all of his graces. God's way is not to show us the future, but instead to cause us to come to him continuously in true dependence and in trusting obedience. So how do we do God's will? We trust him for the future. And by faith, we pursue the wisdom that he's made available to us through his word, prayer, and godly counsel in order to make the best decisions we can, the most godly decisions we can, those which are aimed at God's glory and our sanctification, which is our good, that Christ would be exalted in our lives. Or as Jesus puts it here in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Knowing the will of God has nothing to do with trying to listen for the voice of God or to interpret signs or dreams or subjective feelings. It's about loving God, exalting his name, loving his law, obeying his commands, and pursuing holiness with all of our being. We don't find the will of God by asking, what is God's will for my life or how can I know God's plan for my life? Instead, we find the will of God by asking, Am I seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness? Uh, That is God's will for your life. So um, as we close in, I want to read a quote from Kevin DeYoung's book once again um, that uh, I think sums up well what we've been talking about. He says, Simply put, God's will is your growth in Christ-likeness. God promises to work all things together for our good that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And the degree to which this sounds like a lame promise is the degree to which we prefer the stones and scorpions of this world to the true bread from heaven. God never assures us of health, success, or ease, but he promises us something even better. He promises to make us loving, pure, and humble like Christ. In short, God's will is that you and I get happy and holy in Jesus. The only chains God wants us to wear are the chains of righteousness, not the chains of hopeless subjectivism, not the shackles of risk-free living, not the fetters of horoscope decision-making, just the chains befitting a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Die to self, live for Christ. And then do what you want and go where you want for God's glory. So that is uh, 
the conclusion of what I have. Are there any questions? Everybody's fully informed on the will of God. I was just thinking um, on point number three, you know, God's will for his people and his will for us to obey him. And I was just thinking of like historical examples where, you know, um, you were talking about, you know, caring for your ailing mother versus, you know, the needs of your family. But I was thinking also just in terms of like the Holocaust and the number of Christians you know, um, Corey Tin Boone or Dietrich Hoff, Bonhoeffner or whatever, who had to make a decision to put the law of God above the, the, the law of the land mm-hmm. um, in order to try to save as many Jews as possible. Yeah. And just um, how that, I'm sure in some sense, that conflict that arises because you are disobeying one to obey the other, you know, when this. Um, and, you know, and sometimes history criticizes them for that, um, you know, disobeying the law of the land um, or what have you, um, in the sense that, I guess, in some ways they did lie. Right. Um, but uh, just, you know, like, you know, just how challenging, you know, sometimes it is to, to get that clarity in mind. No, that's that's a good point. Um, life can present us with many very difficult circumstances, and uh, those are some great examples where um, not only yeah, I mean, there's a conflict of authorities in one respect, but um, but doing the right thing is also extremely costly. Um, and um, but you know, I think. Recognizing the higher authority of God in those circumstances, you, you we must obey God rather than man. And um, the question of lying or you know deceiving those who intend to to murder um, is uh, you know some some may find that ethically compromised, but I think um, that making um, the decision to preserve life is is a I don't want to make a hierarchy of uh, you know of God's commands but um, but those who desire you to tell them the truth that they might act wickedly based upon that truth um, don't really have a rightful claim to to that truth in one respect Um, so but yes I think um, those are good examples and that kind of uh, ethical Conflict can can be very difficult to discern. Any other questions? Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you uh, that you have made your will known to us in Christ, that Lord, you, uh, in your sovereignty, are working out all your purposes according to your will. That in your gracious goodness, you have included us among your people and that you have uh, given us your word that we might know how we should live, how we should walk, and that you've given us your spirit to give us insight and understanding. We pray, Lord, that we would be men and women who pursue 
the knowledge of the truth and understanding of your word, that we would pursue lives of obedience, that we would desire above all that Christ would be exalted in our lives. And Lord, that um, we would likewise seek to encourage one another in that, um, that we would be active in counseling and helping one another to walk in the truth, encouraging one another in obedience uh, to your word. Lord, we uh, pray that we would be those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness and that we would be filled. Lord, as we uh, now prepare to go in to gather with the rest of the body for our worship service, we pray that you would be with us, um, that you would be among us, be honored in our midst, and be pleased, Father, with with our worship. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would open your word to us and that you would uh, transform us through our time in your presence with your people, that we would more closely reflect your Son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.